Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jake Horowitz, a filmmaker whose credits include writing on the Dave Foley sitcom Spun Out and writing and directing the short film One Man's Trash. His first feature, All About Who You Know, played the Canadian Film Festival earlier this spring. His second, Cup of Cheer, stars Storm Steenston and Alexander Oliver in a parody of a certain sort of holiday movie. It drops this Friday, November 6th on VOD, Amazon Prime Video, and Tubi. Perhaps on a related note, Jake picked They Came Together, another very specific send-up. It's David Wayne and Michael Showalter's 2014 spin on prefabricated romantic comedies in general, and You've Got Mail in particular, with Amy Poehler and Paul Rudd leading an absolutely ridiculous cast of very funny people, including Bill Hader, Ellie Kemper, Kobe Smulders, Jason Manzukis, Melanie Linsky, Ed Helms, Max Greenfield, Keenan Thompson, Aaron Hayes, Tayona Paris, and the absolutely invaluable Christopher Maloney. It's a pitch-perfect parody of its chosen genre, uh, so perfect that um, some people are still getting fooled by it and leaving angry reviews online. That just means it works, right? This is someone else's movie. I had never heard of it, even though it's like all my comedy idols and David Wayne did it, and it's just everything that is like perfectly made for me. But I was just browsing through like VOD one day and I saw this movie. Um, I think I was at my, I think it was like one of those movie nights where I like went to my parents' house and we all had to agree on something. Um, and so it just ended up being this like rom-com with Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler. And we were like, okay, yeah, that's seems like it's worth five ninety nine. Let's try that. Um, and like, I didn't know what it was. Nobody knew what it was. And so it, started out like any romantic comedy and then immediately you realize that that's not at all what it is and i think that's the perfect way to watch this movie is not knowing what it is and not knowing what you're getting into and just being tricked by it yeah um i kind of knew just from the collection of people involved that it wasn't going to be 100 percent conventional and mm-hmm. uh the and also i think this is kind of important when the film played theatrically here, we were given very elaborate press releases that explain like in the email that, you know, you are not supposed to take this seriously. Um, I got to, and I actually got to talk to Wayne about it um, at the time, which was just a, a delight for me. Cause I, I do, I love him. I, I have to always say that I was not a fan of Wet Hot American Summer when it first came out. I actually kind of actively hated it. Yes. And yeah. And I think that's because I, I expected that these are all funny people I know and they should do something that is conventionally funny. And it was really my first exposure to the thing that he does. Yeah. And the amazing thing, I kind of owned up to that in the interview. And the amazing thing about this was that he said, oh yeah, we wrote this right after. So really? this was written in 2002. Right. Um, and he just couldn't sell it. Um, his argument was that they wanted to make a movie that was immediately responding to the Hugh Grant, Sandra Bullock stuff that was happening, all the like the wave of romantic comedies that happened in the 90s and it really died out shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. And how the people we follow would be monsters, would just be you know, like self-absorbed, oblivious assholes who just rule over other people's lives in the, in the pursuit of whatever it is they want. And that's exactly what they came together is to the point where the characters actually sort of know it by the end, which is this another great twist, but you also have Amy Poehler and Paul Rudd who are just 
you know, incredibly charming human beings. And so because they're the leads of the movie and because they are played by those people, we want to like them. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I have a great time with the push and pull of this movie because you just, you keep wanting to care and it keeps telling you why you shouldn't. And I think that's just delightful. Yeah, and sure, and certainly they, Amy Poehler and Paul Rudd have been in the real version of this movie, which makes it even funnier. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I just, I love a movie, you know, I sort of grew up on, Airplane and like Naked Gun and those movies where the point is to get to the next joke. Right. And all that the movie is supposed to do is have like a certain amount of laughs per minute and that's a successful movie. Um, So that's what I liked about this. There's also a whole thing to be said about, you know, how this came out actually after, and that might be why no one ever heard of it. It came out after this massive glut of spoof movies mm-hmm. in like the early 2000s that just ruined the genre. Oh, like the date movie, epic movie, those things. Yeah. The, yeah, the point to genre make reference comedies. Like, po- yeah, post-scary movie, it was like, here's a pop culture reference. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Oh, what and was then- the one? Oh, it's the, the, the absolute nadir for me was uh, Meet the Spartans. Yes. where someone shows up, a Britney Spears lookalike shows up and literally says, I'm Britney Spears before they kick her into the pit. And it's like, you don't need me. Why am I here? None of this is funny. Oh, yeah. And and so this came out like, it makes so much more sense now that you've said when they intended for it to be made. Yeah. Um, but it came out just like, you know, two or three or four years after all those movies and so probably no one cared about it. And since then, there's really not been another one of these. Yeah, I think the. I mean, this was never going to be a smash. It's just, yeah. you know, the market doesn't allow for that sort of thing anymore. But it's it's weird that it hasn't at least stayed appreciated, that it, it hasn't hung around. I mean, it is just, Kate hadn't seen it, so we watched it again the other night. And there are moments where, like the Christopher Maloney um, costume sequence, yeah, which, yeah. which I was in my notes. Yeah. I cannot, I mean, I cannot discuss it because I don't want to spoil it for people. I mean, I, I don't want to break it down because I don't want to spoil it for people. Um, but it's just, it's so the state it's so Stella. And now it feels like a little more of the, the Tim Robinson, I think you should leave. Yeah. Mentality, yes. Right. Like it's all there. It's just, it's, it's, I guess you call it alt comedy. It's also anti-comedy. Yeah. But the, the, the best thing about that scene, which yeah, I won't, won't spoil, but just watching it again earlier, um, there's no reason it should be included in the movie. In <laughs> five minutes or whatever, that doesn't further the plot. The main characters aren't in it. It's not, it's like, it breaks every rule of screenwriting and filmmaking. <laughs> it's so perfect. It's so amazing. And it's not at all funny if you were to describe it. <laughs> Yeah, well, or it's the, how long is the tell me about it, you can say that again scene, that's three or four minutes, right? Where you're just in this perfect, it's the rake gag. It just, because it doesn't stop, it becomes funny. And this time I was watching and trying to figure out, are they using the same take? I think they're using the same take. Right, every time I watch it, that's what I think. Yeah, which actually makes it funnier Mm -hmm. in a weird way because if it, it makes you look, it makes you, question the reality of the images in front of you while it's also just playing with the cliche that we've come to accept from all of this stuff. Um, 
the uh, even the breakdown, the the opening, uh, the framing sequence that that introduces yeah. us to the world with uh, Rudd and, and Polar explaining to their friends and the audience why exactly they are like you know kind of Jewish, non inoffensively, non threateningly Jewish. That's who he is, and she's an overachiever who's goofy and wacky, and it's just it. It's so great to have people lay it out without any winking. I mean, the whole movie, I guess, is a hat on a hat, speaking in comic terms, because you're constantly hanging lanterns on things and telling people exactly how they should be responding to this joke and then refuting that impulse. But there's something really, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's comforting in a way to have my intelligence acknowledged going in. Mm -hmm. Hey, look, we know these are crap and this is why. But let's. But it's so interesting because it's not. It's like not winking to the audience in a smart way. It's like, it's just. It's the the thing about David Wayne is it's everything he does is so stupid. But it's, <laughs> but I don't know how it ends up being smart at the end. Like yeah, it's so stupid that it comes around to being very intelligent. So. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that is. That's yeah. That's a pretty good way to say it. It's um, it's the self-awareness, I guess it's the mixture of self-awareness and exasperation with the format that we're all trapped in here together. So we might as well enjoy what is so preposterous and so just rote and boring about it. The fact that you know, Polar has one black friend who, Wanda, who never really does or contributes anything except nodding. Yeah, she's just around. This is my black friend who does the exposition and uh, encourages me on my journey, right? She's right. just there. Yeah, and taken for granted, which is exactly how movies like this would see that character. But here, the fact that there isn't even the one token dialogue exchange about that means that the movie knows that this character is here to be taken for granted. It's yeah, it's operating on multiple levels while also just being incredibly bone dumb. Um, right. But that's why I love it. It's just, it is so, um, you know, uh, Jason Manzuk is showing up and nearly dying in his first scene uh, after we've spent what a minute and a half establishing just how lame this character is as a story device, right? He's only there. He's hurt. He's Rudd's sounding board, but Rudd also has the best, uh, the big brother, little brother relationship with Max Greenfield. And none of it is necessary to the plot ultimately, but each one of these characters has a, a clearly defined arc, which only exists in service to the master plot. Like Greenfield's only there so he can get a job, drive the cab and drop someone off <laughs> at a crucial moment. Yeah. But <laughs> the the ridiculousness of the investment of his performance, the fact that Max Greenfield isn't going to phone this in and is actually yeah. going to, yes. you know, when they're doing this really stupid, hey, thanks thing at the end, which comes back a few other times and other characters, Greenfield is the one who gives himself like the hint of a tear and, and tries to actually sell it. And I, I, again, I don't know if it's simply the, the pleasure of watching all of these actors play Mm-hmm. for 90 minutes or 83 it's a really short movie for for the, the the window of time that is available to make this joke work because if it overstays it's welcome you know like it's death yeah um but you get it at the very beginning with with hater and kemper just acknowledging that they're not happy and then powering through it because that's it's not their movie and it doesn't really matter that their characters aren't happy yeah and you get it with um oh my god with michael murphy wearing a nazi pin 
like all these that, tiny that little details. Subtle thing, yes, yeah, yeah, it's and just, yeah, just obviously Michael Shannon showing up and doing <laughs> Spike um, the X, yeah, and and here's this is amazing. I have seen Michael Shannon and Paul Rudd on stage together. They were doing a play, which I assume is why Shannon's there at all, um, in maybe 2012 or 2013 on Broadway called Grace. Yeah, it's a very different relationship. Um, Rudd plays a, a recovering addict who um, embraces Christianity, a certain fundamentalist Christianity, moves to Florida with his new wife. And um, Shannon is his neighbor and uh, it does not go well. But in none of the ways that things happen in this film, and yeah, Shannon is like, clearly he contributed six hours and showed up and they went to a park in Brooklyn and the whole cast is having a blast. But when he, he when Michael Shannon does invade the movie in the end with a sword, that is a logical development for this film. Somehow it's not an escalation. It's like, oh yeah, of course he'd be around. This is totally, this is totally normal for the reality that we have set up, which just involved people walking to Boston and back in the space of an hour. But I think also that's part of, I mean, part of the brilliance of the film is, is the, the casting of it and then the direction of it just to make sure that everybody plays it straight. That's, mm. That is the difference between this movie and Walk Hard and Airplane versus all those Spartan movies where they're not dramatic actors and they're not comedic actors. They're just like Instagram tweens and yeah. I don't know how they are. <laughs> yeah, they're day players. I mean, you get yeah. like they're they're getting a shot at a movie, which is nice for them, I'm sure. And and I think that also explains why those movies happen because who turns it down? You get to be the yeah. feature because you vaguely look, you yeah, know, exactly. Like David Spade, but you're English. Um, I mean, Alison Hannigan was in Date Movie. I don't blame her for taking that. Michael Sarah was in one of the uh, Epic Movie or something like that. Oh, that's right. Oh, I've blocked all of these from my mind. Um, but Leslie Nielsen started out as sure actor, obviously, and that's what made it so brilliant. Is that he, like, it almost like it's almost like he wasn't on the joke. Yeah, well, I mean, who else? Lloyd Bridges and Robert Stack are in Airplane, and and yeah, they were not they were not instructed to camp it up or, or goof on it. They have to play those roles straight in order for them to land. Mm-hmm. And here you're watching funny people be funny with each other in a way like it, it feels like a yes and game that got out of control. Like just, you know, oh, this would be, it's a five minute groundling sketch or it's something that you do at UCB on a, on a slow night. You get a bunch of funny people to do this thing. And then suddenly they're shooting it and it's real and you have to have costumes and, and you have to have um, the commitment to it. I think yeah. it's the joke, like you're right. It's a, it's a premise. It's like, like yeah, like uh, my film is like could easily be like a two minute sketch, like the premise of a sketch. But just the commitment to actually making it and, and, and drawing it out is is something I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, like we can get into that. How how do you talk people into that tone? How do you get people to understand what it is you're going for? Do you just show them something like this and then say, "But Christmas," or do you? <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's interesting when we. Uh, the the way it came about, uh, Cup of Cheer, is um, that I guess I think I had just watched this movie, and like a few weeks later, I was like, okay, so. And then a few weeks later, it was like Christmas, and these Hallmark movies were on, and it came about after I had directed my first movie and took a bunch of meetings, and everybody said, okay, that was good. So if you want to make money, you should start directing Hallmark movies. 
And I just couldn't think of anything worse. So I was like, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do that. I'll do the opposite of that. And so I kind of merged those things together. Like it, it, it is like, it's, they came together, but Christmas, but for shitty Hallmark movies. Right. Um, but you have to build that world. Like you have yeah. to, you have the big city and you have the small town and yeah. you're, and, you're and, styling it in a way that leads us to understand the, the parody at work. And part of like the biggest part of it was like, um, okay, I don't want to do this. If it's like those epic movies, meet the Spartan, the scary movie, 10, whatever. Like I had, you know, me and my co-writer Andy had a list of rules that we got from watching the movies that we consider are good, which are these very specific, you know, it is, you have to be in a specific mood for it. It's a specific kind of comedy, but they all follow rules. You know, this movie is pretty timeless. I would say there's one Justin Bieber reference, which seems a little odd because the joke is he's dressed like Justin Bieber. But other than that, you know, there's no pop culture references. There's, if someone, you know, gets kicked in the balls or falls out a window or whatever, that the joke is how stupid it is. That's not the, the joke isn't like, hey, look, you got kicked in the balls. Right. Um, so we probably had like 20 or 30 rules just while writing it that were really important to stick to. Another thing I love about that came together is just, I think I counted three, like, three F words and then one C word. It's not like vulgar or anything. They're very smart with like when a character swears, it's funny because they don't do it all. Right. Yeah. It has impact. The, uh, there's the the way, and the way that Rudd throws away the C word. Yes. You know, it's, it's a great laugh, but it is horrifying hearing that anger come out of Paul Rudd. Even like, even, even though we are supposed to laugh at the extremity of the joke, uh, I think it's just this great moment where the movie and Rudd both sort of acknowledge that this is not okay. Yeah, yeah. And it pushes a, it just pushes a line right over. And yeah. And that's, again, that's only, that's the emotional intensity you don't expect from a romantic comedy ever, mm-hmm. because you're never supposed to see that the other side of romance is anger and frustration. Like there, there are so many, it's especially the eighties as we've, like as we've evolved as people and cinematic language has expanded, the, uh, so many of the '80s films have been deemed as problematic because they're actively hateful. Right. And it's been smoothed out. And the '90s took it away, and the zeros took it away. And now, a character um, displaying any kind of entitlement to another character or uh, possessive feelings is is immediately coded as bad. And to see that come out of Rudd in that moment that's so smart and so awful at the same time. Um, yeah. The F words are nothing by comparison. That's fine. Yeah. People say the F word, that's fine. And yeah, uh, you, know, you just don't ever see that in a movie at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's and designed to be like it, to show how much they they're trying uh, to hate each other. I'll admit that was like my clearest homage to, to this, to they came together in my movie. Cause I had, I did a, almost the same joke. Um, the difference is that I did it like seven minutes into the movie, whereas they at least have built up the hour <laughs> rust. And so it's very jarring and something that we sort of went back to back and forth on, like, should we leave that? Should we cut it? Um, I guess ultimately, it, yeah, it, like you said, it's a critique of like Hallmark movies and just the like overly sentimental gloss that they put on all these things. And 
how completely stupid it is. <laughs> yeah, this squeaky clean illusion of romance, right? Which yeah. has none of the, un- I mean, just, it doesn't even have to be graphically sexual or, 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 you know, people don't need to be walking around with erections or anything, but they could at least acknowledge that there's an attraction at work rather than just, oh, he's so tender with that puppy that I like. Right. He lives next door to me in this small town. So I guess we have to get married. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get it, but it's, it's reductive, right? Like it's, it, it doesn't, yeah. and maybe that's part of it too, that, and they came together doesn't allow for it. The, the, the softening of romance, the way that most romantic comedies do, there's an actual sense of how uh, emotionally volatile it is to be in a relationship, yeah. even a comic one. Uh, and even though they cut it beautifully with the, oh, my bobbing apples, oh, my party tomatoes, like these people are insane. And <laughs> of course they belong together because they both wore Ben Franklin costumes, but they are dangers to the public if they're left alone. So <laughs> it makes sense that they become a couple. This is a question that I had for you while watching it. Um, I used to do, um, like, I guess I started out, um, like doing movie reviews and I was probably at all the same press screenings as you. Ah, oh yeah. They weren't at all like critical or intelligent or well thought out. I was just like, I just wanted to watch free movies. And Oh, that's how I got into this. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the, once you, yeah. Demi said it, once you find out there's a way to see movies for free, you just don't stop. But yeah. He was right. <laughs> but my question while watching this was like, is a movie like this, is it critic proof or like how do you because you're talking about it very intelligently whereas my opinion of it has always just been yeah it's one of the funniest movies <laughs> yeah like, i don't it's rotten it's not like it has 100 percent of rotten tomatoes people say it's stupid or people yeah. Don't like it. yeah well i mean and i have to come back to my wet hot american summer uh experience where i didn't like it and it's a classic anyway so i think technically yes it's critic proof um I, I think in this case, like they came together as a movie that needed critical support to break out beyond the standard package that it was immediately placed in. I mean, Lionsgate didn't do it any favors by making it look like a romantic comedy that yeah. you could go see as a romantic comedy experience. I mean, you did it play at Sundance? Do you know? I don't know, actually. Um, it didn't come onto my radar until I think it opened in summer in in toronto which was also maybe not the best idea yeah june 2014 uh is when it opened here and um it's kind of suicidal to place that movie in a summer slot although this was six years ago so maybe things like there were better shots at, at success and the calculus wasn't the same but it always felt like a film that escaped rather than got released and so it needed the support of everybody who could get behind it in any forum. So I think, I think a couple of bad reviews might've really hurt it, but the problem I had with, um, or the problem I have with Rotten Tomatoes is that it, once you start factoring in audience reviews, you, you know, you're basically dealing with cinema score where you're, you're just, you're getting the responses of people who don't know the language of film and just saw something got angry and wanted to make sure other people knew they were angry. Also meaningless. It's yeah. It, well, yeah. I, mean, I, I could say the same about film criticism as a whole. It's a dying art and, and fewer and far between uh, are the, are the opinions that are actually, you know, helping. But um, if you don't have a hot, t- I mean, I, I think actually this would probably do better now where 
we're more used to clips and viral uh, success and, and pieces of it could go nuclear. I think like if you actually released a few things, especially now that Paul Rudd is a legitimate movie star, uh, as opposed to the beloved character actor that he was before. Generator of memes and, 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 and viral clips and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think I keep waiting for it to get rediscovered, but I think it's also already reached everybody who's going to be open to it. I don't know how, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I tell people about it all the time. This was another thing making my movie. I was like, okay, you got to watch this. And and everybody, it was the type of people that, like everybody who's found it that I told loved it. And they said, I've never heard of it. Never would have looked for this movie. Yeah. It's just, how do you, but that's it, right? Like everybody in this film is now somebody. Even, yes. the, even the throwaway roles. Like Michaela Watkins has a sitcom now. And yeah, there um, was- um, one of the people sitting on the couch at the party was, um, what's her, I forget her name, but she's- from Oh, Erin Hayes, family. right? Yeah. Yeah, she's in it. She's billed. And I don't know that she has any dialogue at all. I think she just got cut out of the film, but she's, you know, she's from Children's Hospital at this point. And yeah. of course that's Wayne. And that's that's another example of a, of a template that can help people understand this. Um, and that was the other thing when I first watched Children, when I first watched Children's Hospital, I was like, I don't, under, I don't know what this is. Why is it 11 minutes? I don't like it. Get it away from me. No, I love it. Just, yeah, you have to be, you have to understand what it is. It's. Yeah. 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 It's all of these films. I think the thing that Wayne does best is appeal to your better nature and somehow structure a scene or a joke to let you see the intention rather than just the throwaway line. I uh, like Michael Ian Black as Trevor, as the worst person in the world, he's basically playing Bruce McCullough in half of the kids in the hall sketches. And you need like that level of smarm needs to be uh, understandable. You need to understand that there is no way this human being is a person that this, Mm -hmm. like the thing on this screen is just a, he is, he's not the Baxter. He's not the guy that she will fall for instead and get left behind. And that was, that was Showalter, right? That was another state alumnus who came up with the concept of the Baxter um, but they've been, you know, like they've been picking at romantic comedies for 20 years. Of course, that eventually they're going to come up with this perfect engine, but you need to, you need to be able to tell the audience with your film without ever coming right out and saying it, that these are cliches that you're looking at not stereotypes, but functioning cliches that can only exist within the environment that you've created. You're basically watching a terrarium. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's how you explain this. It's like, like Dark it, City. You can never leave. And it's so weirdly simulated. Like like you said with Michael Ian Black, like, well, the acting is so stilted. And somebody who turns this on in the middle would say, why, yeah. why are they all acting like this? This is, it's like a simulation of how an actor in a romantic comedy would act. Yeah. And that made me think of Stella a lot too, where it's it's Wayne and Showalter and, and, and Black, right? The third one is Michael Ian Black running around in suits, just doing things that make no sense. It's almost like uh, Dadaist comedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the same thing in the Eric Andre show where he just runs around creating chaos. And it's not funny and it's not nice. And it's not, it's not even like Borat where there's a point to it. It's just chaotic for the sake of it, which makes it funny somehow. Yeah. I, I think, again, it's the rake gag. It's the fact that it keeps happening and that 
the the pitch is so specific and set so high from the beginning. I I have seen regular well, quote unquote conventional comedies that start pitch too high, like they're at a nine when they should be at a six because then there's just nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. But I think what this film does and what a couple of Wayne's other projects have done and what Stella did is to hit 10 out of the gate in terms of the archness and the satire and then just maintain it. Right. So yeah. you risk becoming a monotone, but if you can tune into the frequency, you can see, like I could understand the intention almost immediately and then it just becomes this endless accumulation of ridiculous detail, which is really fun. Like just the, the running gag that... Um, that uh, the upper sweet side is not in any way profitable and not even trying to be like all donations are for charity. Everything's free. And she doesn't think about finances ever and constantly says there's nothing that can ever go wrong with this business. And I don't know how candy systems research, which is such an amazing name for a candy company, just the coldest thing in the world. Uh, I, I love that simply opening across the road puts her out of business because giving away her candy for free all along hasn't put her out of business. The only thing it could stop is that people will go across the road to the bigger, shinier thing. And I guess that's a comment on the larger issues in America, but it's also straight out of you got mail. So, you know, and it's also the first draft version. Yes. Which is funny because it's, you've got mail and it's everything else. And they don't try to be smarter than that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Nobody comes up with, with any kind of rationale or, deeper motivation for anything that happens. Yeah. Um, and if they did, it would get weird, right? Like it would actually get distressing if people started talking about real problems because romantic comedies can't allow for them. So you have the great fiction books conversation, which I have used in the world because I can't not, I think that's just delightful. Yeah. We're talking about nothing, but it's an attempt, like it's what you plug in to make the characters seem interesting in that scene. Hmm. And then you have these jokes that go, nowhere and these things that break all the rules of screenwriting you have the the costume the halloween costume joke and you have the the uh i don't know how to explain it other than the fuck me booby joke yep (laughs) that is a scene that is absolutely uh funny like it actually is funny and the reactions and i think i actually think that the booby scene is is essential to showing people why you need real actors to do these roles, why you need people to find the comedy and hesitation and that weird moment that like, cause Rudd is he's so non-threatening. It's the whole point of his character that the idea by that point is that we could actually watch this man have sex with his grandmother and we would still kind of be on his side because <laughs> she wants it. She's inviting him on some level. Our brains are telling us it's a movie. They're not really related but he still manages to play like a, a, a family affection and sexual desire in a way that is incredibly uncomfortable and really, really funny. And not even the first time in that movie that he fucked uh, somebody over 60. The third That's right. time, the third time there was Amy Poehler's mother and Judge Judy, I guess. <laughs> yes, that's technically. <laughs> Judge Judy is, uh, yeah, that's uh, that was the one thing that didn't land so well for me, that Judge Judy. And it is just, it's simply a pop culture reference that doesn't need to be there. Yeah. But it's also exactly what a movie like this would do with someone, right? Like it's usually Wolf Blitzer or, mm-hmm. or somebody else who's available for a day and and has some name recognition and and boosts the movie. It's just 
garbage and nonsense. And somehow in this movie, they find a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, you're right. Like they start at 10. That was another thing. Just, just like really doing my homework on it is like, I watched it through and counted the jokes. Oh yeah. Um, Like actual jokes or I counted everything. Laugh or that could be conceived as a joke through structure or whatever. Okay. Um, And it turns out there's six laughs a minute. So there's a laugh every 10 seconds or something that is humorous or could be conceived as funny or like, Oh yeah, that I see why that's funny. Okay. And So that never lets up, which is different from a conventional comedy. Like, you know, even t- comedies of the same era, super bad or whatever, they all have their emotional arcs and, and everything like that. But this doesn't bother with that, which I really admire. Yeah. The arcs are in the framework, right? Like the, 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 the property that the genre is generating the, like, it's not even conflict really. It's simply a matter of time before these characters get together. And so that's self defined. The material is already telling us what, what kind of story Mm-hmm. So all they have to, all Wayne has to do is just hang the jokes on it mm-hmm. and they can be whatever they want. I guess maybe that's it because, because we are dealing with something, it's like a horror film or, or a superhero movie. The beats are self-defined. We already know the audience has expectations and it's not even like this movie doesn't even subvert the expectations. It plays right into them. Mm-hmm. It just reminds us how preposterous they are in every moment. Yeah. And again, it does that by, yeah, the jokes, not being related to the premise necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever the gag is, I guess, uh, depending on the scene, can be anything. Yeah, sure. I mean, certainly having. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about the I'm thinking about the wedding and the and the way that there aren't any active jokes in the wedding itself because we don't really get to see it. We just mm-hmm. get the aftermath. We get the we get the, the aftermath. We get. Rudd showing up too late and and then the weird frustrations. But because we've been trained to expect comedy from all of these characters, we get it anyway because we can catch the pin on Michael Murphy and we can catch the the weird exasperation in everybody else at the wedding that it hasn't happened, but yeah. they're still kind of enthusiastic and rallying. There's only, like there's somebody to look at. There's somebody to watch in every given moment. Yes, yeah. Every frame is packed with something, um, yeah. which is... Yeah, there's also like a question of what, um, like what could be intentionally bad. And this was something that I was trying to figure out in my movie too. Like what can be bad because these movies that you're parodying are bad and or what looks bad because you screwed up, right? Okay. Like I don't think there was any bad filmmaking in this movie. It was all done very, like the score sounded like the score of every movie. The, the cinematography looked as flat and normal as any other romantic comedy, the set dressing and stuff. Um, But like you could get away with, you could get away with screwing something up, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, there's a, I mean, there is a continuity error in, in they came together, which is that the name of the subway station that's visible through the coffee shop changes. And I saw it set upper West side. Yeah. it's it's actually the Clark Street station in Brooklyn because they shot most of the film in Brooklyn. They couldn't afford to shoot in Manhattan. I actually asked Wayne about this because I found it just so fascinating that the first few times you see it, it says Clark Street station. 
And then at the end, it says Upper West Side and mm-hmm. there is no Upper West Side subway station. So I was yeah. just trying to assume there, you know, I, I was trying to figure out if there's actually a Clark Street station. And I said, like, is that, is that a joke? Is that about how completely generic you treat New York? Because the whole joke of the film is that New York is really a character, but we don't, there's never a sense of New York as a character in the movie. That's just the thing that everyone assumes. And he said, that's very charitable of you. We only had the money to do it once. They digitally <laughs> changed the name of the station, but the budget didn't allow for it to do it every time. So he did it the one time you can see it the most clearly. Oh. But I prefer to think that it's a commentary. It's not. It's just it's just a continuity error, but it works because the film has already created this expectation that there's a joke there. I filled it in, which I think is a great way to get out of a lot of these things, <laughs> these, these compromises that you have to make when making a movie. And it's such an interesting thing about film criticism too, that you can, that you can read into things um, that aren't there necessarily. And then oh, yeah, yeah. it creates a deeper meaning of the movie that the director can then be like, uh, yeah, sure. That's what I meant. Or like, actually, no, it was, it was whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do that, I think, way more than we probably should. It's a it's an occupational hazard. Uh, the thing that I never understand is when people enter a film with a clear expectation of what it's going to be, and then the movie is something else, and that somehow isn't seen as a strength. Right, yes. That's really annoying. That's why, like I said, I found this movie out of just without knowing anything about it, that's the way I try to watch every movie. I don't want to watch the trailer. I don't want to really know anything other than, you know, if I know who directed it or who is in it, I have a sense that I'll like it. And if it's different than I expect, that's fantastic. Sure, yeah. No, I'm the same way. I avoid marketing material whenever I can. Um, in, in this case, it really was a question of, well, David Wayne is doing some interviews. We're going to screen this film a little early and you should know. And they <laughs> gave me the pitch, but I think I would have figured it out pretty quickly. I mean, there's also the fact that David Wayne directing a movie and co-writing it with Michael Showalter, who I don't want to give totally uh, short shrift to, you're not going to get convention. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's Thomas Lennon and Robert Ben Garant. They've mastered that side of it, of writing genre pictures that play into the values while still being reasonably entertaining. I mean, they wrote a Herbie movie that wasn't bad. Um, but when, when Wayne did something straight, it's like Wanderlust, which is still a great big, open-hearted, expansive movie that allows for all this weird stuff from individual characters. And then if they're going to do something like this, it's going to be exactly the kind of movie that they want it to be. Like Every choice is going to be deliberate. Every decision is going to make sense within the larger concept. So I came in armed with that knowledge, Mm -hmm. um, but also knowing that it was supposed to be a parody slash pastiche. which I guess is just what happens when public relations people are really worried about how a film will be received. That was weird for me about watching um, The Big Sick, which is obviously Showalter's movie. Oh, yes, of course. Entirely straight, um, but really, obviously really good and really well received and people actually saw it. Um, But yeah, nothing at all like this, just a straight romantic comedy that was interesting because it was well-made, I guess. Yeah. Well, The Big Sick has, um, I think it's the difference is that it's just got a huge open heart mm-hmm. and it establishes that so early that you have to take it seriously. And and of course, because of what it deals with and the, the nature of the story and the fact that it's a true story that they also didn't shy away from in the marketing. Uh, and yeah, the other thing that's weird about The Big Sick is it's also kind of lying to you. It's set in Chicago, but it was shot in New York and 
there's a scene where they go to Fairway and they don't try to hide it. And Fairway is so specifically New York City. But it does feel like a little moment that could have carried over from They Came Together, where the film is trying so hard to establish a reality that simply doesn't exist. And it's just ignoring all all of the cues and not bothering to find reasons for why these things might be happening. Yeah, but then on my end, that's something that I never noticed, having never been to Chicago and not having been to New York in years. It's... Well, it's practically a character in the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even though it's playing Chicago. But yeah, it's. I would assume it's hard to work in a genre that everybody knows inside and out, whether that's romantic comedy or Hallmark movies, and poke holes in it and find ways to subvert it without bringing the whole thing down in your head. So... With Cup of Cheer, do you actually try to make a Hallmark movie and let the material subvert itself? Or do you go for something more arch on set? Like how, how do you how do you find the, the rule, energy? Yeah, the rule was um, that if it's played on mute, it should look like a Hallmark movie. Okay. Um, so, you know, the, the the production designer was had done had done stuff for Netflix's uh, The Night Before Christmas. And like, it was intentionally constructed to look and feel as much like a Hallmark movie as possible. Same for the score. And, you know, all all of our actors, of course, had auditioned for the real thing hundreds of times. Um, And everybody played it completely straight. I just, it was, it's hard to, to, to take it seriously because it, the dialogue's really not that far off of what a real Hallmark movie is. <laughs> you're going to the big city. What? That's where I, or sorry, you're going to the town of Snowy Heights, but that's the town where I grew up. Oh, well, you got to write about, like, it's not that far off from, uh, it's not that far off from the real thing. Yeah. And you you'd sort of have to stick cl- close to it, right? Because if you veer too far off the template, you're just not parodying the, the original concept. Yes. Yeah. And there's so many, there's so many of them and they're all the same plot that it's easy enough to, to know where to go without deviating too far from it. Like, I think the, you know, the funny, the way that we deviated from it is like, well, sure. There's always like this ex who's like a jerk who whatever comes to shut down the small business or whatever he does. I mean, we just, we, we had, we sort of cast against type for that one. Um, and there was, there's little things that we do, but it all sort of follows that straight line of a Hallmark movie. Um, of course, with the exception of what they're saying and what they're doing. Right. Yeah. I I guess that's it, right? You have to understand something well enough to take it apart and put it back together wrong without making it look like, oh, I just forgot this third, like every third piece is missing and that's enough, which I think is is the the bad parody version, which is the date movie movie where you just plug jokes in. Yeah. Yeah, hey, we all hate this. It's terrible, right? Let's just keep doing that. That's not the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's also like one of those things where you don't want to, you don't want to know too much about something because then you're going to, inadvertently do it like oh right so if you if you lean in too much you'll just make another version of the thing rather than a parody yeah yeah like uh will ferrell and kristen wig made a hallmark movie that they played straight it was just a real hallmark movie it was supposed to be funny but it wasn't funny even though that was a that was the lifetime thing right where they were trying to do like a murder a true murder story or something but yeah 
yeah, no, that didn't work. <laughs> or it worked too well. Yeah, because you know it's them, but they're doing it. They're playing it straight. I don't know what the... I just think it was fun for them. I don't know. I have no idea. It's, yeah. I'm thinking of something like The Informant, the Soderbergh film that he cast entirely with comic performers just because then the energy would be different. Mm-hmm. But um, we've sort of already talked about the beats of it, but um, uh, is there anything specific? You know, the closing question on the podcast is always the same. Is, is there anything specific of they came together that you have used in in cup of cheer is there like did you build in a reference or anything i i was waiting for a santa claus costume left on the bathroom floor <laughs> um yeah watching it back there was a few things where i was like did i steal that without knowing it uh, <laughs> certainly i realized this in from watching airplane um and then i'll come back to your question but sure in airplane he takes off he takes off the sunglasses, another pair of sunglasses underneath um, inadvertently, completely inadvertently, because I hadn't seen airplane in like a decade. But we did the same thing where the cop takes off his hat and there's a smaller hat underneath. Um, so now I'll call him no much. Uh, <laughs> I, think I thought that, it was literally the hat on a hat joke, like the point that I, that's another one. Yeah, exactly. This whole movie is about that, that sort of indicating to the audience that they're familiar with the material. Yeah. Um, I think the big one is the C-word joke, which was just so unlike anything that I had seen. Um, that was always when I would watch, I've seen, they came together, I've probably seen it 15 or 20 times because I always try to watch it with somebody new to see what their reaction is. Um, and that always gets one of the biggest laughs because it's so, you think you're in the world of this film and it totally takes you out of it. Um, so that was my big homage was just that it said to this sweetest old lady sort of right at the top of the film she says something she says she puts some money in a chip tip jar and says keep the change you filthy animal which is obviously home alone reference and then he calls her the c-word um that was my that was my big takeaway i don't know i could sort of see it it's the yeah it's just it's not uncalled for yeah it's not breaking the fourth wall it's just showing you that the world that we're watching isn't candy colored hearts and flowers and, and you know filled with teddy bears the way that yeah. we might the, the way that the hallmark whole the whole hallmark industry constantly pretends and desperately pretends it is mm-hmm. to the point of them sweeping away any controversy or you know famously cutting ads from their network or doing any of these awful things that they do just to pretend that everything is the way their viewers, I guess, want it to be. Yeah. Straight and white and wholesome and everything. Right. Oh, that's right. This episode is dropping on the day of the U.S. election. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, well, uh, you know who has my vote? It's Donald Trump. <laughs> Let's not include that. Oh, that's a great out. I think we should stick with <laughs> All right. <laughs> No, you see, that would be like th- that's something else I, that I always think about with these Hallmark movies is not who the audience would vote for, but who the characters would vote for. And yes, you know, like the world yeah. that they're building is absolutely, you know, it's the 50s, but with smartphones. They're not trying to acknowledge the reality of the world around them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're never going to see, I would actually love to see a Hallmark movie where a Trump voter and a Biden voter fall in love together in wacky <laughs> circumstances, but I don't think that world allows for it it's candidates can fall for each other yeah no it's a terrible world we live in 
My thanks to Jake Horowitz, whose new movie Cup of Cheer lands this Friday, November 6th on VOD, Amazon Prime Video, and Tubi. It's the Hallmark movie you didn't know you needed. You can find Jake on Twitter at ByJakeHorowitz, all one word, and you can find They Came Together on Blu-ray and DVD from Lionsgate Home Entertainment. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and streaming on HBO Max in the US and Amazon Prime Video in Canada. And yes, it did premiere at Sundance. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days there as well. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're good. Stay inside. Watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.